Hi, and welcome to the Thank God for the Beatles podcast. If this is your first time, welcome, and if you are returning, it's great to have you back. I'm Karen, and joining me as co-host is my brother, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Karen. And our episode today, we're going to have a great discussion about All You Need Is Love, the uh, Our World broadcast, the magical mystery film and the soundtrack, and um, some uh, updates or discussions about the summer of love in 1967 and other big changes that really um, impacted the Beatles in terms of their direction and their future. And so we're going to get right into it and um, in setting the stage for where we are. We're going to jump into 1967 uh, mid-June. On June 1st, Sgt. Pepper had been released to amazing critical acclaim and uh, just went bananas for everybody around the world. So the Beatles are at the peak. They are basking in the success of Sgt. Pepper, their brilliance in the studio, their songs, and everything. And so uh, it's kind of the the outset and the beginning of the flower power, love is in the air kind of um Situation. So during this time, Brian Epstein, who was their long-term manager, the the person who discovered them, had signed them to a a contract to participate in a the first satellite um, showing, and it was called Our World, and it was going to be beamed, I believe, to four continents, and mm-hmm. the possibility of four hundred million viewers, mm-hmm. and they were to record a live song. Which they waited two weeks before the actual event to actually write, and it was John who ended up composing the song, All You Need Is Love. And, of course, on that day, John was very nervous. In fact, he doesn't show it that much, but, yes, he was extremely nervous about the event. And the uh, performance of that was actually mostly live, but they used backing uh, from track 10, I believe, of the recording that they made in the studio as a safety as a safety net. But yes, they did have a live orchestra, and yes, the vocals were live, the bass was live, and George's electric guitar solo was live. Uh, well, they couldn't do the drums because of bleed-through from Ringo's drum set, so they, they went in, and I believe on the first building of the rhythm track... Paul was playing a double bass. Some of them were playing like a violin or a... They had George, actually, uh, George, I think at one point George Harrison was on violin as well. Um, but during the actual event, it was George playing guitar. And Ringo was just surrounded by a bunch of very happy well-wishers. You had, talk about the people that were in the crowd. You had Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful. So be- before we get to that, though, it was, it was something that they were planning and working with EMI, having to get a sense of how this was all going to come down, and, and George Martin had to write a score once they continued to work on the song. And the song is rather straightforward and simple. And, and John always said that he loved TV commercials and he loved that uh, slogans and propaganda. And so when you listen to this song, you can see where he's starting to move, and this is like the push-off for later works like Give Peace a Chance Power to the People, a, it's such a simple song with such a powerful message, which was really the goal of this Our World presentation. So 
it was a song for them and to, to inspire everybody. Um, so on June 14th, it's like Paul went into the studio and said, hey, how are we doing on the song? And just so you know, the date of the, of the, uh, present of the show, the live show, was June 25th. So talk about, here's the Beatles again, operating within this vacuum of intense pressure. And indeed, uh, they had been under extreme pressure to put out, not after the album, they had to live up to that, and they wanted to come up with a song that uh, would be universal and that everyone would enjoy. And I think they were heavily influenced by what was happening uh, in that, quote, summer of love. And so, of course, John was influenced by the flower power, and you saw that on full display. Uh, I was 10 years old when this was released, and I had remember seeing videos of it, but I didn't get to see it as it was actually happening or broadcast. And initially, they involved uh, multiple, of course, continents of be what was satellite then. I think Moscow was about the only city that backed out like last minute. So it was actually seen by approximately about 400 million people. And, and to put that in context, something, an event like the Super Bowl, uh, maybe 70 to 125 million people view it, American football. So 400 million people watching in 1967 is unbelievably amazing. Remember the population on the planet was much lower at the time. So that's an enormous number of people uh, watching at the same time. So they wanted to convey uh, a positive message and it did resonate and of course necessitated that it be put out as a single. And so one of the things as they're getting moving toward the presentation is that, you know, they wanted to decorate it. They had the placard signs they had balloons. The day before the live event, they had the journalists come in and the photographers, and they were kind of rehearsing through everything. And, and they found that one of the mics that they had for Paul, who was going to be playing his Rickenbacker live, was blocking his face. So Jeff Emmerich, they had to scramble and to get a smaller mic as to not obscure his face. And you can see with John singing on the video that... Uh, you know, it's a big mic that he's singing into, and so you get kind of half of him. In Jeff Emmerich's book, Here, There, and Everywhere, he, he's always kind of referenced how George gets super nervous about his guitar playing and how his leads crumble or he's just, you have to make so many takes. And so they were all quite worried about George being able to do a live solo, and I, I find that to be fascinating because here's George Harrison in this incredible talent who's played beautifully in Hamburg all those years. Again, insecurity, you know, what was it that drove that? But even when your engineers and your producer are a little concerned too, you know, is that something designed to keep John and Paul at a certain level and George at another level? I don't know. Um. I don't really see that. I think that George's nervousness about playing live is is due to his own perfectionism. Uh, George wanted to establish himself as an independent writer, and we'll get into this as we get into this album, uh, his contribution to it. He threw every technique at the book there. He used every effect possible because uh, he wanted to be something other than a Beatle, I think, at that point. He... He wanted to move away from the identity that they had established. And they also, they're playing live uh, in 
through 1966, uh, admittedly had deteriorated in quality somewhat because of the screaming and the noise and they couldn't, the fact they could not hear themselves. They didn't feel they were progressing as musicians. So George's playing might have, for the older songs might have been easier, but for the newer songs, I think they're, the pieces were more specific and more challenging. And then maybe there was some insecurity about that. But uh, I don't think there's any deliberate attempt to keep George to keep George at another level, another tier. I think he's just inside George himself doubting his own abilities. So they had this um, in London, this just a wonderful collectiveness with the other musicians. And so they wanted to invite their friends. They had all their girlfriends. They invited Eric Clapton, uh, Marianne Faithful. Keith Richards, Keith Moon, Graham Nash. Mm -hmm. This uh, satellite event was going to be filmed in black and white or shown in black and white. It's shown in black and white. Everything was black and white. Imagine the world you're in there. The world was just starting to explode with color. Color TV was something relatively new in 1967, 66. Not everyone had a color television. So by default, most people around the world saw this in black and white. And even though... The event itself was strewn with color. And the same thing, unfortunately, happened with uh, Magical Mystery Tour. We'll get into that when we get in discussing the uh, filming of the special, of the TV special they created for this album. Uh, but it was a black and white world, and it was a mono world. All the Beatles mixes up through that point, even through Sgt. Pepper, they, Jeff Emmerich had considered the Sgt. Pepper to be the true album was the mono mix because all the Beatles were actually present in addition to himself and George Martin. And so the mix down that they wanted was in the mono vision. And then the Beatles were never present during the stereo mixes. So when we look back at the video of this, um, all you need is love song. It's uh, John delivers a great vocal and he's smacking that gum, he's chewing that gum as he's singing. Paul's playing live. George does a wonderful job with the solo and Ringo is happily miming to the drums, and they have the live uh, ad hoc orchestra in there mm-hmm. doing, the, doing their, their bit and the festivity of everybody around. And it really was something, again, it goes to the Beatles' uniqueness and to their creativity and being a leader versus followers of setting the stage. So incredible success, and... Um, they had to go back in afterwards and to overdub a couple of the verses or, or a verse or two or something f- for John with his vocal. Right. I think they did a bit of doubling with John and something else interesting that not many people notice the difference between that live performance and on the record where there's actually at the intro after the La Marseillaise French anthem that was played at the beginning of the song, uh, there's also a drum roll on the record that was overdubbed later. Ringo. Yes, Ringo right. did that, and then they, uh, Paul had like one bad note, and they buried it, and then they added, I think, a flangy, spongy thing on George's guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then of course, you know, it doesn't take long. Within, I'm looking, let's see what the release date. I believe the release date was um, in the UK, July seventh. And then in the U.S. it was July 17th, and of course um, it went to number one. It was huge. On the flip side of the single was Baby, You're a Rich Man. Which 
I love you. Want to talk about it? Sure. Oh, Baby or Rich Man is a heavily bass-laden uh, track. And it's very funky. Uh, I think it's, it's pre-funk, actually. The entire song is, today, I think, would make a great single. I think the flip, the reverse would be true because of the times that we're in. I think Baby or Rich Man, I hear other Grateful Dead cover bands also adding that song to the repertoire. I think it's very much um, like a, I think it's got a great chorus and boasts great vocals. How does it feel to be one of the beautiful people? Uh, the lyrics were a bit of the time, but even now you could say that what if this is the parade of celebrity and, and keep all your money in a big brown bag. It kind of the absurdity of being, of being wealthy. They, uh, took that, and that would make a great single, I think, today. But well, it's, it a, a, it's a song that stands the test of time. I mean, it still sounds great today, and that bass does lead, and it again, it goes to um, Jeff Emmerich, how he mic'd that bass, and what he did is to make it so prominent, it just creates that churning rhythm of the song. Mm-hmm. So in that summer, here you've got All You Need Is Love, Baby, You're a Rich Man. You also have Sgt. Pepper still playing through, uh, un, unreal. And so there's, I think, a little time break where the Beatles are just kind of chilling out and over the summer and probably just enjoying everything that's happening. It's about a 72, almost a 72-day gap interrupted by your mother, should know, which we'll get into. But Well, they and then they went back in the studio on August 22nd to start. It wasn't actually Abbey Road. It was the, I don't know how you pronounce it, Chappelle or Chapel Studio. Uh, yeah, Chapel Studio. Chapel was... Um, was a publishing house as well as a studio. And so they were very, a big powerhouse. Uh, they disbanded and closed up in 1979. But Chapel Studio, there was the one time they had gone into that studio. And uh, curiously, I think we'll be getting into this soon. It's also the last time that um, they saw Brian Epstein. He actually had showed up at the session for Your Mother Should Know, which was recorded of the basic tracks in that studio. And they were listening to an acetate recording and, and Brian looked uh, pretty uh, down. They said he was down and quiet in the background. Right, very rather not not himself. Perhaps. Not himself. Very glum. And three days later, you know, he died from an overdose of barbiturates. So well, and and at that time, uh, two days before his death, the Beatles went to the Maharishi's uh, seminar, I believe, in Bangor, Wales, and or it was Bangor, I think, remember and. They're all attending it, and then they, they uh, I think it was a couple days or something, mm-hmm. and that they got the news that Brian had died, mm-hmm. and it was such a shock. I think that they were probably, they didn't say much. They were just kind of dealt with it the way that they deal with things, and which is to keep working, and um, well, they Brian, had to- Brian Epstein's mother did not want the Beatles to go to his funeral because of the... The drama, the attention would be, you know, it was just too much. And so they they were fine with that. And who was really broken up? And of course, we're not saying that the Beatles weren't broken up. They were, but George Martin was greatly affected. And it makes you wonder, were they, was George, were George Martin and the other people behind the scenes, like, did they kind of just sense immediately, oh, we're in trouble now? I think so. I think to some degree they were. And I think that the, the, the death of Brian Epstein 
uh, lent itself to a bit of the randomness and the chaos that ensued afterwards. And I think it manifested itself in the making of Magical Mystery Tour. I think that that was Paul's subconscious attempt to maybe start to guide the groups, him being the methodical workhorse, decided that they just needed to go back to work. And, and although it wasn't a unanimous decision by the group, they started re- working on Magical Mystery Tour within five days. Well, and also, if you look at the, the comments that they made to the press after John's death, after Brian's death, excuse me, John had said something like not to get overwhelmed with grief. And it was, it was the ideas and the coping mechanisms that they were learning from TM and from the Maharishi. What's interesting about the Paul taking the lead is that Paul was very afraid that the band would just kind of go off to India because they were talking about going to India at that time and never come back and that the band would break up. So he was insistent that we're going to do my, we're going to do this thing because he broached the idea of doing like a movie ish thing. And, and it's a great, if you've seen uh, go, Google it and you can see Paul has created a circle and divided it into sections like a pie, and he's kind of outlined with keywords what's going to be in each section of this proposed Magical Mystery Tour film. And in hindsight, it's, I remember reading that Steven Spielberg said he, was, he loved the film, and that and you look at how they presented how he did that, it was nonlinear, and it was very fluid uh, avant-garde, if you will, but it was, again, it goes to um, out-of-the-box thinking by McCartney and by this group, and so Paul's like, yep, yep, we're gonna, it's, it's, we're gonna get ready to do this movie we're gonna film, and, and guess who backed away from it, who kind of took a step back? Uh, actually, George Martin backed <laughs> away from <laughs> it, did. ironically, because he, he claimed that he let the Beatles have their head on this record. In fact, the one most produced song uh, on that collection is I Am the Walrus. Well, so he and John have that collaboration, which we'll get into in a little bit. But part of the uh, randomness of what occurred, uh, according to, say, Jeff Emmerich, is I think is influenced by a lot of what the artistic movements uh, around that summer were happening. For instance, um, in San Francisco with the Grateful Dead uh, and uh, with John Cage, uh, talking about the randomness of... Of creation, so that way, if Lawrence Olivier had walked onto the camera, they would leave it in there. So basically, the, and there were happenings, which were called ran, so-called random events. Uh, so art, art was considered something that would was incorporated into whatever happens, happens, and as long as you put your love into it, it might work out. It's worth keeping. It's worth recording. But that approach did not work organizationally. It was organizationally, except I think for Walrus, it was a bit of a mess. And and that's how it was looked upon later. Even though the film had eventually had become together in the editing, uh, the actual uh, recording of it and the actual trip itself is full of mayhem. It was a big mess. Well, the um, back to George and George Martin and I am the Walrus is that he really didn't like that song at the outset. Couldn't feel it. What just was like it's so out there. But John, it was John's baby, and he just kept working it and working it, and then he could hear, George Martin could hear where the orchestration could be used, how they kept developing it and developing it, and it's 
it is such a uh, wild song. So many things happen with that. So here we're setting the stage is that Brian died on August 27th. They take a few days off, but they get back into the studio to work on some songs. And then in the meantime, they're trying to get this coach bus, this coach bus painted, organized, getting the general scheme of things. And on September 11th, they start filming. And they only film these, this, this, we'll call it a movie, TV show, for two weeks. And there's a, Jeffrey sent to me a great um, behind-the-scenes documentary of this, of like all the children who have grown up or who were in Magical Mystery Tour, all the, the settings, and they're talking about the time of being in the movie. And, and you get the sense that without Brian, the disorganization was high because they, you know, they weren't used to making hotel arrangements or coach arrangements or anything like that. So it was just really a get up and go kind of have fun, do your thing. Right. I mean, cause they were the, because they were the Beatles magic was supposed to happen around them. Uh, who cares about hotel arrangements when you're the Beatles? Well, it just didn't occur to them, I think, uh, to get into the details because they were again, allowing some random events to happen and to film them. And, but they would show up at these places, uh, and without considering what was happening with the actors, although I'm sure they tried to take good care of them, um, it was chaotic. They gave them five pounds to cover their meals, <laughs> something like which I don't you know. I don't know if that was meals for the day. It got I got the sense from reading some of the the background information on it that they didn't really stop and eat a lot. That they had few meals. <laughs> right. They were working or on the um, you know on the bus for a bit. So. Um, the Beatles get this group of people and they want to have like the courier. Mm-hmm. And we'll just preface this by saying that we just, Jeff and I just watched this with my mother. My, our mother's 90 years old. <laughs> and we're like, oh no, she's going to hate this. <laughs> so we were all laughing hysterically. I don't know why. It wasn't really that funny other than it was stupid funny. Is that... <laughs> Well, no, no. I I think actually some of the film, and this can be argued, um, was it being artsy? Was it being uh, funny? And I think it was a bit of both. Um, I think the editing of it was being artsy. Uh, the use of color and the overlaying of music, etc. A, a mixture of music video, which is actually something relatively new, which I think the Beatles helped create music video. Uh, but I think this is just basically one long music video with interspersed with certain random scenes in between with uh, a few actors to help them out, basically making up their own lines and, and storylines and just let it evolve from there. Um, I think it was actually hilarious. There was some, for instance, the dream sequence with aunt Jesse and, and uh, Paul where, shoveling this, the, whatever it was, John food. Lennon is actually playing in it uh, like an Italian waiter who is taking shovels of spaghetti and she's saying, sitting there saying, I can't breathe. And Ringo's sitting across from her, you know, keeps handing her napkins over and over. And so it's in like a nightmarish dream sequence. And there's this plastic cow is standing, you know, a gigantic cow. And they're getting imaginary, they're getting milk from it somehow and passing it along. Uh, various characters. In it. And there's other uh, dreamlike sequences that randomly happen between a Mr. Blood Vessel and Jesse, who is rather um, austere. Aust- yes. Oh, wrote, yeah, he's austere and she's rotund 
And the two of them and then have this romantic walking on the beach, falling in love, Valentine sequence. And my mother was just sitting there in hysterics and laughing at, at that whole scene and uh, over, over-dramatized. For the, and I thought that it fit really well into the actual tenor of the piece. I think there was a great deal of humor. For instance, when they, the, the surrealism that permeated the art of the time, they threw that in. Why not? They would go into, they would go into a, a tent which uh, led them apparently nowhere. Uh, they go into some place uh, that you could not see. There was an imaginary thing. It was an, like a dream. Again, some impossible things ha- were made possible, dream sequences. And then you would go into the I Am The Walrus video where they're all dressed in their in their floral clothes and afghans and beads and, and, uh, and then putting on costumes and, and using the lyrics of the song to amend the costume, like I Am The Eggman and John Lennon wearing uh, temporarily in some moments of that sequence. Uh, some form that resembles an egg around his head, as in egg head. So, so for the first week of filming, they went down really to the I would the beach areas. I think it was something like the Royal Atlantic Hotel. Yeah, and they're filming, and then the second week they go up to I think some London scenes and the Royal Air Force West Malling Airfield, which is was decommissioned. So that's where you get all those interesting. Uh, cement structures where you have the police four police police officers on top mm-hmm. swaying, and then the Eggmen are coming in, and they also used that place for the marathon, which I had totally forgotten about that scene right, when I would watched it right. years ago. By the way, Eggmen is a real thing in Britain. Uh, we have milkmen here. Everyone uh, in the past used to have their milk delivered by a milkman, just like we had mailmen. Well, they had Eggmen there, and so I am the Eggman, they are the Eggmen. There's, again, a bit of humor tossed in. But yes, the, the the pretty little policemen in a row, well, there were the four policemen on top of that structure as you referred to them. Uh, there's so many other sequences. I mean, what else do you remember about it? The tug of war with the children. Oh, that's and right. And the use of the the race. The race was hysterical. And you had Ringo <laughs> driving the bus, which is even scarier. <laughs> you know, and, and, the, and the actors would say that the bus would almost... Going so they were going so quickly for the vehicle and design and it was almost tipping over on this on its side, you know. And and then of course the film was sped up to make it look even faster, but it was a crazy sequence that really had no meaning and it's just a, another random event. But you had a race and then you had a lot of the character actors and you had you had the little people, the mid- little, little the little people, the little people, yes. Yeah, the little people against all the ones and all either jumping or running or whatever else they could possibly do, jumping along or running along in this ridiculous race. And some would start early on purpose and run. It, it was, was just, just... And it was funny. Now that I'm... You know, it was really funny because it was just so crazy. Right. And one of the scenes that was cut from... Or one of the things that they had hoped to do, they had hoped to go to like to, to the village fair mm-hmm. and the bus got stuck on a narrow bridge and they were stuck for quite a while. And apparently the tempers got hot on the bus. And so they're filming people losing it. Never made it (laughs) into the film. Yeah. So, um, uh, I mean, just again, talk about planning. Well, there's a really lovely moments that they would capture in the editing. For instance, you see, uh, John Lennon and George sitting together on the bus with the little cute little 
girl, little Nicola, little Nicola, the toddler, and he's uh, trying to blow up a balloon, and she would say no, and she would answer him, and he would say, "You got yes," and he would make John would make these hilarious uh, responses, and then went to George, 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 asked George to blow the blow up a balloon, and George's balloon was pretty lame. I mean, it was very very cute little sequences and that you saw in there. And then you have got Ringo singing. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts sitting next to his supposed aunt Jesse. And they're made up dialogue from the beginning and interspersed throughout. So they used Ringo's acting skills there. And they improvised the argument between them. Oh yeah. And it's very funny. Uh, it's really, really funny. I think the whole thing was funny and artsy. Uh, were they in over their heads, what they wanted to accomplish? I think, uh, I think about maybe 20%, 25% over their head because the production could have been much better had it been better organized. Maybe they could have created some other scenes out of that had they done some more planning. However, as a, I think of it more as a great period piece. Well, my favorite scene would be, I think, Fool on the Hill with Paul because you get these super delicious uh, close-ups of his eyes and how he looks and he's just kind of dancing around and plus it's very pretty i don't know how they got that shot the overhead shot i mean it was pre-drone uh film so i enjoy that and i do like the final scene of your mother should know with the dancing and so what's very cool about this event that and this this show that they've made is that they've brought in um dancers they brought in the female cadets Mm-hmm. to to do that. And it looks like they were just having so much fun. And again, the Beatles had a lot of fun laughing, joking. I don't think they, they like, whatever, let's make it work. And there's a scene of um, Paul and the little, little photographer on the beach. And Paul, I think, is riding a bike. Random stuff. They did, the BBC, when they showed this, cut out, I think, the scene on the beach with um, Aunt Jessie, and Mr. Blood Vessel. It was a little too risque. One of the funniest scenes in that they should have left it in there for that audience. I think they, the British audience easily could have handled it. There was nothing untoward in that in that scene that was ridiculous, of course. But And plus the BBC chose to air it on their main BBC One, the most watched network in black and white, when most of the color effects, for instance, during that um, scene where it changes the colors, colors are flying, you know, the, they use their instrumental as basically kind of a uh, filler for that scene. And it makes it would make no sense watching it in black and white. They did have a color network, but it was not as heavily watched. Again, the whole thing with the Beatles being a bit ahead of their time there. But I love that my favorite sequence is Your Mother Should Know as a music video in and of itself. It's, it's great to see them all in their white tuxes coming down a large staircase and swaying back and forth doing very basic simple kind of dance moves there was some light choreography there they weren't all meant to be great dancers but they did it with with great humor and panache and it's a great song plus so one of the scenes that was cut it was a john idea and it was of i guess there was a somebody uh happy nate the rubber man and he's chasing bikini-clad women around a swimming pool. Well, that didn't make it into it. But we did see them in the strip club with Jan Carson and the Bonzo 
the Bonto Doodog Man with <laughs> Doing Neil Death Cab for Cutie. De- Death Cat Death Cab for Cutie was the song which George Harrison did. Oh, that should be a single, and I thought, well, they said, well, I don't know about that. And and the great uh, late great Neil Innes, uh, famously later of the Ruddles, uh, which is a parody of the Beatles. Uh, was in that Bonzo Doodog band and that strip club scene and where you see John and George getting overly excited along with the other is in the crowd and they separated the men from the women of course they showed that scene and also you had uh, the great Victor Spinetti playing the sergeant yes let's not forget that and and the sergeant who is mumbling total nonsense of course normally he would incorporate a few curse words but uh of course, they couldn't do that on BBC, so he just he just mouthed a bunch of nonsense. It was hysterical, and you know, it is that really the genesis of where Monty Python became influenced from? It was just so crazy. It was just oh, and how about the Beatles themselves dressing up as magicians. wizards, magicians, yes, the magicians in the magicians in the sky? Look at them; they're having a lovely time. You know, <laughs> they just had fun with it. And most of those scenes were filmed in the empty hangars at that um, decommissioned. Um, airfield. So, you know, in hindsight, as we look at this, it was ahead of their time. It was very clever. Clever. Now, the Beatles did get a sense before. I think it was shown on Boxing Day, which is December twenty-six. If I'm, I think that's correct. Mm-hmm. They did have little hints from people who saw it and were like whispering to George Martin, going, "Oh my God." And they tried to get it pulled, mm-hmm. and Paul refused and right. just said, we're just going to let it go. Uh, they think they offered to pay them like 40,000 pounds to pull it. Oh nope, my. nope, nope, we're going we're gonna to do that. And they got hammered in the, in the paper, hammered. Oh, of course they got hammered in the paper, but you know, I think there's a lot of people in Britain that are in, in the media at that time were rather humorless and didn't understand what the Beatles were trying to do. Uh, you don't see them showing happenings. You don't see them showing like what Yoko Ono would be showing. It was avant-garde. It was different. The public was not ready for this. Uh, and, you know, and having John John Lennon in there saying, you got to bring me a cup of sugar as a wizard. He, there's a bits of humor in it were actually great. But I don't think the British public uh, took to it because it wasn't like Hard Day's Night or Help, what they were used to seeing. And they physically looked different. They had on... Flower power. They had the uh, Nehru jackets and brightly colored clothes. Their facial hair. I mean, they looked different. Hair they was mu- their hair was much longer too. Yes, they weren't the cute little beetles anymore. That were fun to grow up with. Right, right. That, that their identities were changed. They, they were becoming more, I guess, relaxed or more themselves. So, well, you know what? They became more powerful. And George Martin, you know, they could. Uh, they went from the role of the student to the teacher, mm-hmm. which is they really. They understood their own power, that they were making tons of money for EMI, and that they held the cards. And mm-hmm. so that's a huge shift in their operational procedures sure. within their life. And so the, it's, you know, with Paul keeping them busy, honestly, Paul thought it would take one week to edit the film. It took 11 weeks, and Roy Benson, who worked on Hard Day's Night, worked with them and and. Paul had said, I think, in the Barry Miles biography or something like, yeah, here it is. We think it'll sync up. And then Benson is saying, well, are there clapperboards? Well, on some of them, mm-hmm. you know, no way to to notate what scenes. And so 
I think they did a really great job editing it now. Now if you really sit and deconstruct it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, they did a great job. I mean, nowadays it would, like you said, comment, and when we were watching it, it's almost like a high, sc- a high school project, but a very fun high school project conducted by four brilliant people uh, who are letting their hair hang down, but also contributing news material to it, to the piece. So it was just going to be the Beatles experimenting. And that's what the Magical Mystery Tour amounts to. It was after um, the headiness of Sgt. Pepper, they wanted to let their hair down a bit and create something. I think the beginning of their individualism, like you said, indicated, alluded to, is coming out here. Uh, And if we get into the songs, I don't know how far you want to go with that, but when we get into the songs themselves... Let's just start... Pick a song. Let's talk about a song. All right. I'd like to talk about Blue Jay Way because uh, George Harrison tends to get, again, get short shrift. But um, each of the Beatles were taking advantage of the talents of Jeff Emmerich and and George Martin and the engineering feats they they already accomplished in proper. So they wanted to continue that. And George Harrison, when he wrote Blue Jay Way, which is about Derek Taylor uh, trying to get to a house he was staying in L.A. in in the fog. And, of course, they eventually made it. Uh, the first line, there's a fog upon L.A. Well, when you first hear that, it sounds almost really, really almost, um, I can't find the word for it. I think it's almost ethereal, a, ethereal, uh, almost a little creepy. Foreboding. Foreboding, creepy, um, a surreal. And you hear th- this low uh, Hammond, I believe it's a Hammond organ uh, playing and it, it's, it's like you're being drawn into this world and you hear a bit of the strings that were overlaying too. And then he took advantage of the, of the flange effect. Okay. Uh, on the voices. And they're also, they used back, you'll hear some backwards backing vocals on it. So he took advantage of almost every, a studio trick he could use in that song. And I think it succeeded as a piece. Um, Please don't be long the refrain. It, there is a bit of uh, foreboding in the entire song. If, if you were lost in the fog or couldn't see your way through, I think the song evokes that. Uh, and it's symbolic perhaps of what was happening in their life. Sure. Of the fog of losing Brian. Right. Where are we now? Where mm-hmm. are we going Mm-hmm. And again, that's the spiritual side of George, who was a deep, deep thinker. Mm-hmm, sure. I think that he was reacting to it. And I think maybe on some subconscious level, he was picking up on a vibe of, okay, I'm not sure where we are now. Well, they had spent a lot of time on that song with George, and, and it was remarked that that was uh, George's quote-unquote, I am the walrus, because there was so many, so much layering and like all the studio tricks were thrown in there. So then they also have Flying, which was the original, I think, title was uh, Aerial Musical something. Yeah. uh, I'd have to look at my notes, but, um, and that was based like on a 12-bar blues original. And in the initial version of it, uh, it was a little bit jazzier and they had a bit of saxophone on it. Of course, you don't hear that in the final version. I think that would have been interesting. You know, I would love to hear a saxophone in that song. It was probably a nice little jam they made but they but I think the recording what do you think the recording of it was meant to be is I think they intended this for the film as a Yes, I think it was definitely meant to be part of the soundtrack of the film. 
How about, um, well, so we've got flying, so then we have uh, Your Mother Should Know. Uh, well, Your Mother Should Know was actually the last song, the closing song on the video version, but not on the LP. The Your Mother Should Know is Paul McCartney doing his music hall. Uh, and I think at the same time, there's a slight tinge of melancholy in the song. Uh, talking about there was a great deal of youth going uh, rebelling against their parents in that time and but Paul still had a type of respect and reverence for what had come before and I think he was trying to bridge uh, generations by saying remember your mother should know let's all get up and dance to a song that was a hit before your mother was born saying that all music and all all of that is valid and also, I think an emotional connection, uh, missing his own mother and John missing his mother, both um, died when they were very young. I think that, that there was a, a bit of that slight melancholy in the song, and the, but also with that sense of kind of music hall celebration. Yes, it's his music hall, his legacy of loving that kind of music. Right, and and he kept it in, in terms of, and of course, with the Beatle production, I think that was the first song in August, I think, of 1967 that they had recorded, were working on recording for Magical Mystery Tour. I, I think that, that was, was in very... June they started hammering that out. Right. And then they, and I think then Paul had gone back and heard a re, uh, heard the mix and wasn't very happy with it and wanted to do a retake or redo. And they and did they, that in the fall. In the fall. And then they ended up not doing that, not using that retake, and then ended up getting John back in with the studio with him to work on uh, some of the vocal parts again. Uh, but uh, you, Paul put a lot of work and care into those songs. But I think, as I love the piano in it. Uh, I, I love the whole production of it. Do and, you like The Fool on the Hill better than... Your mother should know. I like. I can't say it's like it better. I like it about the same uh, for different reasons. Um, the Fool in the Hill is not something I listen to as often. Uh, to me, it sounds a little dated now. But uh, as a piece, as a song, it's a beautiful song. I think that uh, I've heard Paul do it in concert and stay true to it. It's a nice piano piece, and it's got a very haunting melody. And again, I think there's a sense of of um, melancholy there. In that song, I think that indirectly, and that's how Paul approached things. Was they were they, they were think, they were reeling from what happened. They were reeling from what happened. I think that this is what their creative reaction to it. They poured Paul uh, always poured himself into his work, and I think the rest of them followed suit. They were responding to uh, the ensuing chaos, and so. Not only was the artistic fluence, like say from John Cage and all these things, where everything could happen, I think that related itself into the actual recording process. And so that's why George Martin let them have their head. They were trying to express themselves and get and work through. I, I think that a tremendous loss, a tremendous and, loss. And they did end up going to Brian's service on October 17th, and that was in London. And I think that, I think they had a right to do that. They made it a private service, but yes. I think that at, at John. Brian Epstein discovered them and gave them their career. I think that uh, Brian Epstein, and remember in 1967, it was still illegal to be homosexual in England and up until I think the law just changed uh, after Brian's death, ironically. But so he had a lot of his own personal conflict. I read his book, a book about Brian Epstein, and, um, and I think he felt depressed over uh, his lack of 
something to do. He didn't, that's right. And the other thing is with the Beatles is a lot of people that are associated with the Beatles, unfortunately, um, once they lose their purpose, they tend to fade. Bad things happen to them, like with Mal Evans got depressed after the Beatles had disbanded and couldn't find work or find something to do. And the Beatles didn't really reach out and take care of them as much as they should have. There are people that not were not intentionally discarded, just that when the Beatles would change the direction of what they wanted to do. They just people, went and ran in that direction. Right. And I mean, they would go in a different direction. Then you were no longer really an integral part that you once were. Well, during this fall period, Yoko's, the first time that Yoko's in the studio with John, um, there's a picture of them sitting together. Uh, Japanese journalists were brought in, so there's a nice set of photos from that situation. But here's this period. They've also got Yellow Submarine like on the back burner. They really didn't weren't too keen on it. It was kind of foisted on them, and they're kind of giving their B-level songs and pushing those over like... Um, Oh, what's the acoustic one with um Paul with Paul A? <laughs> so what's the one that Paul did? Can I take my friend to bed? Oh, oh. all together now. All together now. From Yellow Submarine. And it's all too much. Um and it's all too much, George. Kind of they sent those over to the other project. But during this time it then George Martin's like, Well, we need a single. Well, it's only the a, the they year. worked on it's only a northern song a lot too. But yeah. anyway, we need we need all, a single. There's a lot of extra songs that recorded during this time that had been released later. I mean, you know my name, look up the number was recorded during this same time period. Uh it's all too much. Those are all re- a lot of the songs, it was a heavily fertile creative oh. period for them. It was just unbelievable. Mind boggling. The mind boggling, the output. I think because the intensity of all that creation, uh, with all everything swirling around them and the headiness of Sgt. Pepper, uh, they were finding themselves as redefining themselves as recording artists, and that turn, took that term literally. They were learning about how to record and make whatever sound they wanted happen because they no longer had to tour and weren't under the pressure to recreate those songs live and had no intention of recreating them live, and that gave them a new freedom. So I. We're looking at uh, the Beatles now as an entirely reinvented band, uh, but as a, as studio creatures, and and but what, still needing to have a single and to have a hit. And so Paul brings in at the time titled "Hello, Hello," which became "Hello, Goodbye." Right. And again, another uplifting, fun kind of song from Paul. Clearly, much more broad based. For to be a single where it's going to pull people in. And there was, you know, John was really wanting to have um, I Am the Walrus as the A side. But George Martin and Paul overruled him and he acquiesced. And when we talk about, well, talk about what a single, Hello Goodbye and I Am the Walrus. Well, Hello Goodbye is deceptively simple. It's a great melody but the chord progression is anything but it's it's a comp it's actually pretty complicated and you weave in all the background vocals that come in there it's also complicated what they did and uh, i think that as far as the uh bikini clad girls that they were going to put in magical mystery tour but did not edit it you'll find in the hello goodbye video at the end when they have the little hawaiian uh Luau outro, dancing, yeah. The, the Hawaiian outro, hey now, hey la la, you know, you know how that goes. So that song um, was obviously intended to be a hit single, and it worked at many levels. It's pure Paul McCartney. 
is total melody. Um, so and- a, a fun fact about the the video that they made for that, they it was shown in the U.S. and other places, but it couldn't be shown in um, England or the U.K. because they were miming, and against the musicians' union, you could not mime. And so once they didn't have live uh, violin or viola players in that video, it was obvious that they were miming, and so it was not shown. And again, here are the Beatles being leaders of doing these promotional films to support the music. Well, they kind of didn't really care about those those rules. Uh, these were very arcane rules for the time designed to protect the jobs of of various musicians and hence you had an, an instrument like the Mellotron and John was actually, Lennon was actually one of the first people to buy Mellotron uh, and had it in a box and had it in a wooden case. And you hear the Mellotron significantly on uh, strawberry, fields. strawberry fields, of course. So that instrument, well, the reason the musicians union was against it is because you could make various imitations of other sounds. It's essentially it. a sampling machine, like a tape loop. Mm-hmm. Right. And so again, the and and if you listen, go back and listen to "I Am the Walrus." Well, that's the first. Uh, that's not the first time, but it's 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 heavily sampling uh, King Lear and various other. Well, uh, for the "I Am the Walrus," what was unique about it is that they had mixed it and got into its place, but it still wasn't finished. John wanted something else, and so mm-hmm. John had, I think, the Mike Sam singers come in, and they're doing "Oompa Loompa." Right, <laughs> whatever they're right. singing, some all, and then he's having them making these weird noises, and then he wanted a live radio, and so the engineers at EMI had to scramble. They had to go upstairs. They had to get it. They had to connect it. So as they're doing the final mix, you're getting a live radio with the ending from the tragedy of King Lear. Mm-hmm. That's right. The tragedy of King Lear appears at the towards the very end of it, and uh, with the orchestration overlaying. I think that. Um, once George Martin caught on to what John was trying to accomplish, uh, they really made that song into a piece of surrealistic art. And even in the lyrics, well, that's all Lewis Carroll. It's all Jabberwocky. It's 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 all um, it's sitting his, on a cornflake. That's right. His desire to work with words and to you know, make things unusual. It was what he did it in his own right. He's it's been word, doing it his whole life. It's, it's what he's always done. It's wordplay, uh, which John never got to really let his hair down and explore that. And so in this particular song, the song is all uh, a fantasy, a wordplay, but I am the Eggman. And again, you hear the woo at the end. Well, I think all of that, again, was maybe John's reaction to what was happening around him. I think there was a sense of, he sensed, uh, the chaos that was to come. I think that he picked up subconsciously um, his reaction to uh, Brian's death it was again through the creativity of that song is to reaffirm, go is, is to retreat into um, the fantasy of what he read as a child and the safety of that. I think that partly that's in the lyrics. Uh, and then and then living that out and throwing artistically whatever he wanted at it. Uh, so I think that was a very good collaboration and uh, we well, can't. and ultimately a one over George Martin. He really liked it at the end, and his orchestration and his input made it an incredible song as well. So that was uh, that was good to read in the bi- biography by Kenneth Womack of George Martin is that ultimately he came around and liked it. I mean, I'm sure that there was tension in, again, having to release control. George Martin at... 
George Martin, Jeff Emmerich, Ken Scott, or uh, Townsend also, at the mercy of the Beatles and of what they're doing. And so what you really see is how hard these guys work because Paul was editing the movie, and then afterwards they, they would do that from 10 to 6, and then he would go to the studio to start to work on the soundtrack and work on the songs. Mm-hmm. So yeah. on um, November 24th, Hello, Goodbye, I Am the Walrus, Walrus is released. It's their third single. And then, uh, you know, they're getting things wrapped up to show the Magical Mystery Tour film on in December. But then guess what? We still have to do one more thing. We have to get the fan club recording in right by uh, the end of the year. Right. I wanted to mention, though, today is September 5th, and September 5th was the, uh, this is the, today is the 53rd anniversary of the initial recording of Strawberry Fields. So if you think back from 19, I think 50, or is it 54 years, actually? I take that back. It was 1966 when that was started. Strawberry So it's 54 years ago today that Strawberry Fields Forever, which started this whole surrealism trip that the Beatles took on. Uh, began. So here we are near the ending of 1967. Uh, they put out the video on uh, the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, to mixed reaction, uh, to put it mildly. And um, But they still put out their Christmas message to the, to the Beatle fans. But you know, back to the bad reviews that they got, where they got hammered. Paul was very commonsensical about it took it in stride and said, well, you know, this is where we were and what we were doing at the time. And, you know, didn't let them, it didn't curtail or throttle their creativity. It's like, I think that they felt they needed to do it. They did it. And then they continued to move on. But in the meantime, it's the pressure. You've got to get this, um, the Christmas present out to the group. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they still remember they weren't touring anymore. So the, they wanted, a connection with the fans. And I think you know more about that, but they were recording Christmas time is here again. Wasn't it in July when they were working on that? They did that in the middle of the summer, uh, working on Christmas time is here again. I don't know that that's, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look, but I do know that they were, it's the one song that was credited to one of a couple songs credited to all the Beatles mm-hmm. and that they kind of wrote out their little parts and you can hear the joy and the fun. And it's really, honestly, a great song. It you know, is. We can't sing it here, but it's a great song. I encourage you to go look on YouTube and just Google Christmas Time is Here Again. Mm-hmm. It's fun. And then they're all kind of doing their little characters and making you laugh. I mean, they're just so funny. They're just so funny guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, let's not forget that why we love the Beatles so much is uh, whatever they were doing, it was, oh, they tried to make it interesting. They're trying to make it fun. They tried. They they didn't compromise as far as expressing themselves, uh, but they said, "This is us. This is where we are now." But let's all enjoy it. Have a laugh, shall we? I think a lot of it was uh, um, Paul's optimism that helped get them through um, a strange uh, year and a strange time. Uh, a time when George Harrison actually was checking out the Summer of Love. Did you know he actually made a trip? to San Francisco. To hate Asbury. To hate Asbury to see what it was all about. 
And he came away rather disappointed, thinking, well, God, this is just more like a clothing fad or a fad for these, ki- these kids. They're, they're not really delving in any deep way and, and look, checking their spiritual selves or looking any deeper. So I think he came away, and he was the most spiritual one of the Beatles, came around this rather cynical about uh, how the public used it, how the public, um, and especially the height of it in Haight-Ashbury, was taking it. So he thought, well... At least we put the message out there, but um, well, and also at that time he was work, beginning to work at the end of the year on the soundtrack for Wonderwall, which was electronic music. So again, a, something else to add on to their plate. So let's talk quickly. Talk about in, in the UK they did an EP for Magical Mystery Tour, which was a limited set of songs, and it was had a gatefold with some great pictures and cartoons and and such. Well, that doesn't cut it in the U.S. The U.S. doesn't want just four or six songs. They want an album. Right. And the Magical Mystery Tour album was put together, and they thankfully included Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane, All You Need Is Love. In addition to the new material for the movie, it's a bigger format. It's a bigger album, LP size. And it well, was for, very popular. Well, for me as a 10-year-old, opening it again, opening a Beatles album is like opening a Christmas present. Because if you had the actual vinyl LP, it wasn't just in a flat sleeve. You opened it up and there was an entire uh, photograph booklet. Uh, there was a, a, a page, inner, inner page with the lyrics printed for this new songs that were actually in Magical Mystery Tour. And then... You had the singles on the second side. So we Americans were used to having an average of five songs per side, a certain amount of time, maybe 20, 25 minutes per side on vinyl. And so I'm grateful that they actually, for the first time, decided to scrap the whole idea that singles could no longer be on albums. That was... Well, that was an American decision. It wasn't a decision. And it was an American decision that I... It's an American decision that I support. And it was supported because uh, the the American LP was like the 30th on the import list in England. So people clearly wanted it. The other thing about uh, the album is that it became part of the lore of the Paul is Dead movement, which we won't talk about, but it's uh, maybe another time, but... Um, to go back and to look at all the clues within Magical Mystery Tour. I mean, it was that was half the fun as well. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to, I don't think about Magical Mystery Tour album that much. I'm much more into White Album and Abbey Road and early stuff. But in listening again closely and watching the movie, I really, I think it's amazing what they did in this short amount of time and this summer and coming on the heels of Sgt. Pepper. Well, for me, uh, it was a a magical album. I think that I tended to identify with that album a great deal more than you did, um, I lo- because I love your you were a kid at the time. Because yeah. the kid, I was a, a ten, and I I was very influenced by Strawberry Fields and the surrealistic video. I thought it was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen, and then the video of Hello Goodbye, and I loved seeing their Sergeant Pepper with them wearing their Sergeant Pepper costumes and uh, putting out a great single. I loved seeing. Um, the Penny Lane and the video. I think it's a great song and with a piccolo trumpet because my dad, our dad played trumpet and it had, and then all you need is love. Uh, all of those songs are fantastic. So uh, I think in having them in addition to your mother should know fool on the hill 
the title track and then the enigmatic, wonderful uh, I Am the Walrus, it was, for me, I was fascinated by that. And I think to this day, I'm still influenced by it. I, I think Strawberry Fields Forever is one of the most beautiful songs uh, you could write amazing. about your childhood. Just, yes. and, and John's vocals on this, on John's vocal on All You Need Is Love is is incredible. And he ethereal. nailed it. He totally Na- nailed, it. Ta- nailed it. He nailed it in the live version and on the recorded version. I think it's also his, his vocals um, on this record, uh, on I and the Walrus, is stunning. So... Uh, they're cutting loose, and I, I, I think I tend to identify with the kind of the randomness that somehow comes together as a whole. Uh, says a lot about the level, I think expresses a lot about the level of talent. They had outgrown um, the need to be produced or controlled to a point. And also it was growth, personal growth. They're evolving. They're not stagnant like other bands, one-hit wonders, couldn't couldn't bring it up to the next level and here they keep leveling it up and that is truly the the remarkability of the Beatles so last thoughts before we wrap this up uh I personally love Magical Mystery Tour uh as a segue between what was happening uh after the accomplishment of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band to have uh, these wonderful songs and I think that that presaged uh, the next record, which we already discussed, the White Album, because they wanted to, quote, get back to basics. I think it all flows in with the excitement of being off the road and being able to just let their hair down in the studio and try anything. And But they were able to try anything and somehow make it work. Because why? Because not only did they have the material and the talent behind it, but they also put in the effort that made it happen. And... They seem to do it almost seamlessly, but in our eyes. But uh, for them, they worked so hard during that year, and their output is just staggering to me. And I'm uh, even more impressed by it when I look at the history. Well, and I couldn't agree more with you. And, you know, that's why we titled this podcast, Thank God for the Beatles. Yes, indeed. And that wraps up Episode 4, All You Need Is Love, 1967, All You Need Is Love and Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening to us today. And you can always find us on iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, other platforms. We also have a YouTube channel and um, where we post like some pictures from the sessions. So enjoy it, subscribe, um, and leave us a nice rating if you can. But we appreciate your time and we will see you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks.